Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership guitarist Tracy Singleton, better known as Spacey T. A member of hard rock, metal band, Sound Barrier since 1983, he has also recorded and performed with acts such as Mother's Finest, Fishbone, OG Funk, Doug Pinnock, 24-7 Spies, Praise the Dead, and The Funk Experience with Billy Bass Nelson and Gary Mudbone Cooper. The man brings together three of my favorite things, hard rock, hard funk, and shredding guitar. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> hey, welcome to the show, Spacey. How are you? Hey, great, man. Thank you so much for having me. I feel I'm honored to be here. A lot of my heroes have been on here, you know, so I'm honored. Well, it's great to have you. And where are you today? Uh, I'm living, I live in Arcadia, California. Been living here for the last 10, 12 years in Arcadia. So for those who don't really know, I would say that's about uh, what, 15 miles north uh, west of L.A.? Yes, and it's right next door to Pasadena. Yes, yep, yeah. where the Rose Bowl is for those yeah. who haven't been. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I don't even know if you know, but I, you know, I grew up in um, Los Angeles and mostly oh, went to Santa Monica High School. And That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So 
Um, I was there until 2006, so I grew up going to all those shows in Holly Weird and, you know. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Maybe, did, were you here in the 80s? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe maybe you saw a sound barrier then. I, I could have. I was at so many shows in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. We were all over those clubs in the 80s. That was our stomping grounds. Yeah. And, you know, um, I was at, you know, anything that had a, a, a wisp of, you know, hard-edged uh, rock, funk, mm -hmm. um, you know, I wasn't far away. So that's awesome. <laughs> Um, so great to have you. Um, I'm going to start by uh, stepping back a little bit and uh, finding out how you first, you know, gravitated to the guitar and, um, you know, who some of your early influences were. Hmm. Good question. Good question. Well, I'm originally from New Jersey. I've been living here in California now longer than I'm where I'm from, you know, from uh, Long Branch, New Jersey, Red Bank, uh, Asbury Park. Tinton Falls, New Jersey. That's where my, all my family's spread around. And, and most of my immediate family still live there, too. I have relatives out here, which uh, let me fast forward, you know, how I got out here. But growing up in New Jersey, my main influence is the first guitar I ever heard was uh, West Montgomery. Because my dad is a, a, a avid uh, jazz collector. And growing up, he played his albums a lot when he was home because he was in the Navy. So... He was only home most of the time on the weekends back then, and he'd come home and play music, and I'd hear Wes Montgomery, and I'd go, wow, Dad, who is that? And he goes, wow, that's Wes Montgomery. That's, for him, that was his favorite guitar, so greatest guitar player in the world, and I said, wow, someday, man, I want to be able to play like that, and he laughed, ha, ha, like, you know, this is before he heard me play, and he's like, sure, son, if you say so. <laughs> You know, and, and today my dad's one of my biggest fans because he's like, wow, son, you blew me away. You could play everything from West Montgomery to Animals and Leaders, you know. So it's really great that it's come like that. But going back, um, after West Montgomery, it had to be Jimi Hendrix, you know, Jimi Hendrix. And then I, I slide the family stone. And then my, one of my biggest influences back then after Hendrix because I was so sad when Hendrix passed, you know, and I was searching for other people like that and just trying to see if there were more people that looked like me that played that kind of music, you know what I mean? So I started, uh, even way back then, becoming like almost like a black rock collector way back then. So the next guy that on the right on the list that was there waiting for me was Eddie Hazel. So, and that was a weird story in itself, how I got uh, turned on to Funkadelic. One day I was... Uh, Messing around with guitar, because for me, my grandmother was our uh, matriarch of our family. She came up to me one day and said, you're going to play guitar. And I was like, okay. So I started messing around with it, and it's all like, you know, by ear. I was all played by ear. And, and I played in open tuning, because when I got my first Strat, I handed it to a friend of ours that was in a band, um, older keyboard player, and he tuned it to open D. And said, here you go. And I, you know, I didn't know what the difference between standard and open D tuning was. So I learned how to play in open D tuning. And I've been doing it ever since. And I, and I can play in standard tuning because, you know, today I teach kids in standard tuning and stuff. But for me, I prefer open tuning because that's the way I learned. And I can play anything in, in, the, in that tuning, you know what I mean, from Ingve Malmsteen to anything in that tuning, you know. 
so going back, uh, I was messing around with the guitar, and, and my aunt came home one day with her friend. Her name was Carolyn, and she goes, wow, you sound like Funkadelic. And I was like, Funkadelic? What is that? And she's like, you never heard of Funkadelic? And I was like, no. And so she went home and got that first Funkadelic album, the round one with the faces. Yep, the one right back there. And, and she said, this is Funkadelic. And I was like, wow. She gave me the album, and I looked on it, and I looked on the back, and the first name that I saw was Ed Hazel. And it didn't say Eddie Hazel. I'll never forget it. It said Ed Hazel Guitar. So from then on, anything that had Ed, Eddie Hazel's or Ed Hazel's name on it, I would pick it up, you know. And, you know, and there were other guitarists I discovered at the time, too, like Ernie Isley and a few other guys, you know, and which I totally loved and respect. But the guy for me was Eddie Hazel, you know, and he just blew my mind. And I learned everything I could learn by him. And, you know, and, and I started getting to the point where I can hear what he sounded like. And I can hear his vibe, you know what I mean? And that's the thing that I think that I picked up on more than a lot of other guitar players, the feel and the vibe of different players. And that's what happened, where I, I started sounding, where I could sound like Eddie. And people were saying, wow, you sound like Eddie Hazel. You got to meet Eddie Hazel, you know? So my big thing was I was telling people in New Jersey, I'm going to move to California someday, and I'm going to play with Funkadelic. I'm going to play with Eddie Hazel. You know what I mean? So... 1978, I moved to California, and I had a friend that moved here a couple months ahead of me, a bass player friend, and we stayed in touch. Well, let me let me interrupt you one qu real quick. How far yes. did you grow up from Plain, uh, Plainfield? Not that far. Not that so far. So that's even, the... We had a band yeah. called To Be Continued in Long Branch, New Jersey, and we were the house band at this club called the, uh, the Off-Broadway. So every once in a while, the owner, Sarge, used to have other bands come in to play. And one of the weekends, he had the bags come in from Plainfield. And that's when I first met Boogie and Glenn and Gary. They were all they all came with the band because they were all buddies and played together anyway. So they were all there. You know, so I was like, wow. And, they, and he, the bags even did Funkadelic covers as well. And it's funny because we did one gig to be continued in Plainfield, and I, I had my um, thin line Telecaster I took there and left it there, and somebody stole it. <laughs> That's what I remember about Plainfield, you know. Um, but man, Eddie Hazel was the guy for me. So, and and then I discovered a few other guys too. Another guy I discovered right after Eddie Hazel was Ronnie Drayton. Ronnie Drayton from um, and he was on that Edwin Bird song Supernatural album. He changed my life as well, and I got to meet him years later. And there's a few other guys. Michael Tolles is another influence. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Tolles because a lot of people don't know who he is. If you ever heard the Barcase Black Rock album, oh yeah, you ever hear? Mm -hmm. Brilliant guitar. He's the guitarist on that record. He's one of my heroes to the end. He was shredding back then. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you listen to that stuff to, today, he still is an inspiration today. Yeah, me. Lloyd Smith is who I think of with guitar for them, but he's Which before one? Lloyd Smith. Which one? Lloyd, yeah. Yeah, but this this guy, he was their, well, I was going to say he was their first guitarist, but he wasn't. Because going back, remembering, I mean, there was the Barcase that passed away with Otis Redding, and then uh, James Alexander put together the Barcase, the Black Rock Barcase, and right. that's what Michael Tolles was the guitarist, and he only played on the Black Rock album. After that, he left the band, and then um, 
Vernon Burks came in. Vernon mm -hmm. Burks played on the uh, watch stat stuff, and then Lustig Lloyd came in after that. See, so I try to be a um, kind of like a, um, a historian when it comes to this stuff, too, because I was trying to follow these people to see if there were more people like me playing the kind of music I was playing. You know, and then I started discovering all of these black guitar players. You know, and I was like, wow. <clears throat> Another one that influenced me a lot was uh, there was a band called Mother Night from New York, Eddie Martinez. Mm -hmm. Another inspiration back then, you know. Yeah, way before Run DMC. Yeah, way before. I mean, Mother Night is such was such a great band. They only made one album. And it, it's phenomenal. It sound, they reminded me of, I called them back then the Black Chicago. Because they sounded, they reminded me of Chicago. They had a full horn section. But it was like Chicago. Yeah, it was like Chicago. Because, I mean, you know how awesome Terry Kath was on guitar. So he was, he was like that to me. They, it was like the black version of Chicago to me. You know, so those were some of my main influences before I came to L.A., you know, and not to mention the other guitars, because I was definitely listening to Black Sabbath and and all the other Grand Funk, Love Grand Funk, all of that stuff as well. And not to mention all the funk I was listening to, because the band to be continued, we were like a top 40 kind of band that played the hits of the day and the obscure Funkadelic or Sly and the Family Stone songs that we loved as well. You know what I mean? Wow. What, when, when, when did you first uh, see, I assume you got to see Eddie play at some point? I, um, I didn't get to see Eddie play until I moved out here. And I, I've only seen Eddie play with Funkadelic one time. And that was when I first moved out here and they played that big funk festival at the Coliseum. <laughs> and I went there and I saw Eddie because we already knew each other by then, and I was yelling, yelling. He saw me, and I ended up going backstage, hanging out with him for the rest of the evening, which was pretty cool, you know? Wow. That was great. Because Eddie, man, Eddie was such a great guy. I mean, he was everything that I imagined him to be and more. And the weird part about it was usually when you're a big fan of somebody, you're usually chasing behind them every chance you get, right? It was the opposite. Every every time I turn around, Eddie's here. Eddie's here. Eddie was chasing after me, you know. And and it's, it was so weird. I said, I can't believe that Eddie Hazel is keeps coming to hang out with me. You know what I mean? And one day he told me why, you know, because we uh, he he got me the gig with Bonnie Pointer. I don't know if you heard that stuff, but Bonnie's Purple album. That's when I moved to California and ended up. Uh, my, well, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I was in California for about a month. And what year was that? Excuse me? What year was that? That was 1978. And my friend Raymond called me one day and he said, hey, man, you'll never guess who I'm playing with. And I'm like, who? Who are you playing with? Who? You know, I want to know. And Eddie snatched the phone from him and said, man, you better bring your butt down here to the studio. And I was like, wow. And I, I got down there so fast because they, um, they were in the studio at SIR in Hollywood. And I was about mm, maybe 10, 12 blocks from there. So I, I could get there pretty quick. And as soon as I walked in the door, he said, you're in the band. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even play anything yet. And he goes, you're from New Jersey, right? And I'm like, yep. And he says, you're in the band. And I'm like, okay. So, so I watched. And the thing is, I have a lot of this stuff on tape. Because I have, you know, those little old school cheap uh, cassette players they used to have with the little handle that you, I took that down there with me. 
So I was like, uh, you don't mind if I record any of this, do you? And he's like, man, go ahead. Just take whatever you want. So I set it up and let it run. And um, he said, play something for me, you know. So I started playing all of his stuff back to him. Red Hot Mama, Maggot Brain, Good Thoughts, Bad Thoughts, just all of his. And he's like, whoa, you sound better than me playing me. And I was like, man, I just want to tell you that I just loved and respected everything you did. And I always wanted to be a part of it. And, and he was blown away. So It's a little right? bit like the Mike Hampton story, you know? Yeah, yeah. It only the Mike Hampton story is real interesting too, because they were at a party and at a and he played for them at a birthday party. But I think this was Eddie's last version of the band Kingdom Come that he had, because my friend Raymond was the bass player, and I forgot who the drummer was. But the weird part about that was after all of that happened, I never saw my friend Raymond again, and I never saw that drummer again, and I don't I don't know what happened to them. Next thing you know, I'm in the studio with Eddie doing Bonnie Porner's album, you know, and that blew my mind because I'm sitting there in the studio. Eddie, we're sitting there talking. In walks Sly Stone. In walks Freddie Stone. And wow. I'm like, Ollie Brown. And I'm like, wow, I'm going to. And, and, it, and it's weird because it's not only like, am I getting to meet these guys, right? I'm getting ready to make an album with them. Something that's down forever, you know, with my heroes, you know, and I'm like, had man. you been in the studio before ever? Say it again. Had you been in the studio prior? Yes, a few times before, but add my three of my biggest heroes there recording with me. I mean, I'm like, I don't want to be that kid that they go, okay, son, uh, maybe you need to go home and practice a little bit more. Luckily, I had it together enough where I did it, and it was wow. You know, and I felt like I got to follow in Eddie's footsteps because on the Bonnie's first solo album, the Red album, there's a song called Free Me From My Freedom, yeah. which featured Eddie Hazel on bass, guitar, and banjo. So on the Purple album, I did a song called When the Love Light Shines Through His Eyes, that awesome Supreme song that I grew up listening to my whole life. So Jeffrey said, I want you to play bass, guitar, and banjo on this song. So I did it, and it and it came. It's beautiful. I don't know if you ever heard it, but it's banjo. Awesome. Yes. Had you and, ever and, played banjo before? Nope, I never played it before that. But all I knew was Eddie played it on the album before, and I had to, I had to live up to what he did. What he did, you know. And the gratification was when they first played it all back. I was sitting there, and they were playing it, and Freddie Stone comes running in the room and goes. Wow, who played that banjo on that song? And I was like, I did. And he's like, that's a great banjo part. And I was like, one second. <laughs> I had to run in the bathroom and say, wow, Freddie Stone said I played it great. But I was freaking out, really. I had to keep my composure because I worship Sly Stone, Freddie Stone, and Eddie Hazel like nobody's business. So to be sure. and Sly used to call me son in those sessions. So I was like, and because of him, I got some really great things. There was an, uh, an instrument out at the time called the Arp Avatar, which Michael Hampton used on the Funkadelic album. And I was telling Jeffrey Bowen, the producer, about it. And I said, Jeffrey, man, there's this thing out. You know, Michael Hampton uses it. And Arp Avatar. And I said, man, I would, can you please? I'd love to use that on the album, you know, somewhere. And then he looked at Sly and he goes, Sly, should I get him this thing? And Sly goes, yeah, get it. And he got it for me. 
And I said, well, thank you, Sly. I, I couldn't believe it, man. And, and I had, I still have that ARP avatar. I sent it back home to New Jersey, but I still have it. Wow. I didn't get to use it on the album, but I used it on some of our, my, the band I was with at the time, we were called Lightyear Flight. And I used it on those sessions. And it was crazy because, man, I, I, I'm going to write a book. There's so many stories I could tell you that it's just ridiculous. Each one of these things I'm telling you branches off into their own stories as well, you know? Wow. So Which is crazy. Back, back then at the height of their popularity, I mean, how much uh, experience did you have meeting any of the other Funkadelic members? Well, that's, that's a great question as well because uh, we were at my house playing one day and Eddie was playing guitar and I picked up the bass and I started playing all of Billy bassist and Bootsy and all of see because I studied Funkadelic music like the back of my hand you know so I started playing this stuff while Eddie was playing bass I mean guitar and he goes he put the guitar down and says come with me and I'm like well where are we going he's like just come with me he took me to Billy's house and he said Billy listen to this guy playing your parts and I started playing for Billy, and he's like, wow. <laughs> it blew him away. So then from that, I ended up playing with Billy bass. I ended up playing, I played bass with Billy, and he played guitar. He took my guitar, played guitar. He had two other lead guitar players, and I was his bass player for at least two years. And then we switch off, you know, and then he played bass, and then I played guitar. But most of the time when I played with Billy, I played bass with him. You know, and now fast forward with Muddy and all of them, I'm, I'm back to playing guitar. You know, he's on the bass, and I've never seen him smiling so much. He's so happy. We were getting ready to take off with this funk experience thing until the pandemic stopped everything. Yeah. Yeah, I know you guys did like a spotlight show not far from me in Asheville. Wow, I wish I could have met you there. That would have been awesome. Yeah. Next time we do it, you got to come hang out with us. Yeah, no doubt. It's a, it's a date. Um, so when you were hanging out with those guys back, that was in the late 70s then? Is that well, when I bags and those guys? Yeah. Before, well, I met Eddie in 1978, and I met Billy. It had to be late 78, 79 that I met Billy. <clears throat> We've been friends ever since, you know. What's, a lot of people um, see him as being a little, you know, irascible, or he's certainly a character. And yeah. um, what's the secret to sort of getting along well with Billy? Um, just love and respect. Because, see, what happened with Billy, when I first met Billy, I was starstruck. So he used to curse me out all the time because I used to say, man, you're Billy Bass, man. I, you know, I want to play with you. I'll do anything. He's like, man, I wish you would stop that shit, man. You need to cut that out. And what he was meaning by that was he was putting me on the same level as him, but I was putting him on a pedestal, you know? And I, and I just, I couldn't help myself. I was starstruck, you know? And Eddie wasn't like that. Eddie was the complete opposite. Eddie smiled all the time, always laughing, to where Eddie just made you feel more comfortable. Where with but Billy though, but see now that I've known Billy so well now and for so many years, we just have so much mutual respect for each other. And once I realized that he was putting me on the same level as him, I was good, you know. 
And now it's just, like I said, it's nothing but love and respect. We, we talk a lot on the phone, too, a lot. Hmm. I love That's... Billy with all my heart, man. I'd do anything for him, you know? Well, when did you uh, first meet George Clinton? I first met George Clinton when I was playing with Fishbone. We, we used to do some shows. We did a few shows, and we opened for them here out in, in California. And that's when I first met George. Because, I mean, no, yeah, yeah, that's when I first met George. Because after that, we did a, a NAMM show, and we did the Goose at the, uh, I forget what booth it was, and George came up and played with us, and that was pretty cool. And then uh, he also sang on our album, the... Um, the Nutworks album that we did. We did uh, Everybody is a Star. And I think that's the last official recording of Rick James is on it, Gwen Stefani's on it, and George Clinton. And Angelo and them all took turns singing the verses on Everybody's a Star. I don't know if you ever heard that. But wow. it's, it's pretty fun. The name of the album was the Psychotic Friends Nutworks Fishbone album that I did with them on Hollywood Records. Yep. Okay. Yep. And we had a bunch of guests on that record. Yep. Great stuff. And that was our first and only record with Hollywood Records. <laughs> um, so let's go back back to um, how did uh, things get lined up for Sound Barrier? That's a great story. <laughs> well, we're talking, uh, the band got together in like 81, and we started playing the, uh, the club scene. All the clubs in, in L.A., Hollywood and uh, Orange County and all these different clubs. And we were playing at this one club called Madame Wong's West in Santa Monica. And um, the record company came to see a band that was uh, playing upstairs. I forgot who it was, but we were playing downstairs at the time. And they was leaving and heard us and said, wow, who are you guys, you know? You know and, and the next thing you know, they were talking about they wanted to sign us. And it was the people from MCA. And it was like, wow, that's real interesting. So it took us, man, it took about a year before we actually went in the studio after that meeting, you know. So it was weird because once we did sign and did the record and everything, Lee DiCarlo was the engineer, Skip Drinkwater, who did a lot of um, fusion with the producer. And the label, just another case of didn't know what to do with us, you know. How did you guys like find each other though? Because you know, obviously, there weren't a lot of you know black guys doing you know metal at that time. So, you know, but you guys had that connection and that uh, mutual respect and love for that music. How'd you come yeah. together? Well, um, at the time, uh, I was doing TV shows. I was playing with Bonnie Pointer, and we had just done um, Don Kirshner. We got to do all those shows. Don Kirshner's rock concert and. Midnight Special and all those shows. And at the same time, um, there was a band called Kalor playing the local uh, club circuit. And Bernie, the singer, was one of the background vocalists in Kalor. Mm -hmm. So somehow I had some friends that knew them and had me uh, meet them. And I told them I played guitar and they wanted me to audition. So I auditioned and then I joined Kalor. So we started playing the club circuit for about a mm, few years and our music started once I started contributing to the band musically the stuff started getting a little louder and a little heavier 
and we had a female vocalist, and she started saying, wow, you guys are starting to get too loud and doing this, and maybe you should start another band, and she kept saying, you know. So we decided to start another band. So Bernie and I left the Calor thing, and it, it was falling apart kind of anyway, and we started looking for drummers and bass players. And um, we found Dave Brown, our drummer, and at the time we had a different bass player, his name was Keith, and he uh, played with us for a little while and he left the band because he was afraid to play with us because his friends would make fun of him like, oh man, you're in an all-black band playing rock music. And I was like, and? <laughs> but he couldn't handle it, so he left. So our drummer Dave at the time, he knew Stanley, Stanley E, who ended up being our main bass player, and he brought him in. And as they say, the rest is history. Stanley and I became so close friends that we're like like brothers to this day, right now. And when Sound Barrier broke up, we stayed friends. And we did a lot of other projects together until Sound Barrier got back together. What, you know, we had split. What, what was your, like, uh, your vision and ambition for the band when you know you put that first record out? Uh, the vision was to kind of like carry on, kind of like what what the cross between like Sly Stone and and the Band of Gypsies was doing. You know what I mean? But make it a little bit harder, and just like because that was the main influence for Sound Barrier. When I saw the Band of Gypsies, I was like, wow. I mean, because I loved the experience. I loved it so much. I mean. But when I saw the band of Gypsies, I was like, wow, you can do that? <laughs> you can have three black uh, men in a band together and it's and it's okay? You know, I couldn't believe it, you know? Because, I mean, Sly Stone, he made it, um, he opened up a lot of doors. I was shocked when I first saw his band with the females and black and white. And I was like, wow, that's, that's an ideal band right there, you know? So um, that, was the, that was the thing, to try to keep that thing going. That, that Hendrix, Sly Stone kind of positive vibe going. Because when we first started, we were about partying. We weren't like political hardly at all or none of that stuff. But as life went on and as we started getting flack for being like black, playing rock and playing metal and all this stuff, we started getting a little more political with the music because I couldn't believe that people, you know, let, was telling us all this stuff, especially when... By that time, I really knew that it all started with Chuck Berry and Little Richard, and, and we were trying to carry on in that tradition as well. You know what I mean? So it was like, well, I don't see why there's so much flack against us doing what our ancestors set out for us to do. And, and you were, were you, um, you know, hip to, like, you know, Bad Brains and, oh yes, um, you know, Busboys and things like that? Yes. Um, see, like I said, each one of these things branch off into stars. I have stories for both of those things that you just said. Like, I ended up years later playing with HR. I'm, me and HR are like best friends. I played in a bunch of his bands. The last time I played with him was with 2015. He came here because he lives in, in Pittsburgh now, I think. And he came back to L.A. and we did a little West Coast tour. And um, he's talking about um, us getting together again, and I want hopefully I'm going to finally get to record with him because I played with him for years but never got to record anything. I mean, live shows, but I mean studio recordings, you know what I mean? And then what you say about the Bus Boys, Victor Johnson joined Sound Barrier. He was in Sound Barrier for about a year and a half. Mm. 
And um, right before the Sammy Hagar thing, right before we we went through all our stuff, like I went, I was in um, the Mesa Boogie store in Hollywood, and Victor was in there. And I said, you know what, man, we should get together and do something together. So I brought him. He used to come to my house. We worked out all the sound barrier songs with double harmonies and all this stuff. And then I brought him in, and they were like, what do you want another guitar player for? And I said, I'm going to show you. And then we were like the really like the black Judas Priest thing because people used to say that we reminded them of a black Judas Priest. But it was really like that then because we had the two guitars and the harmonies. And, and, and it's funny that that's another story within itself, too, because when we used to play at the country club, our stomping grounds in Reseda, California, Judas Priest came to see us play. And they loved it. They loved it. And they invited us to the Us Festival to come and watch them play at the Us Festival. Were you Which fans of theirs? Totally, 100%. And that's the thing about us. See, a lot of people don't realize that they think that, you know, you know the old stigma that we all listen to, you know, R&B and all this stuff. But we did. But we, I was fans of R&B, funk, every kind of music you can imagine, metal, thrash. I mean, I've been through it all, all of it. I mean, and that's the thing that, that black musicians that play rock have to do. We, I must have reinvented myself hundreds of times, you know. There's, 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 I could show you if you saw some of my photo albums, like told hundreds of reinventions. <laughs> you know what I mean? To play these different styles of music, you know. I've been through the reggae scene. I got all my roster friends and the whole like funk scene. You gotta got to be versatile. Funny. Super versatile. You know what's funny though? They don't all mingle with each other, but I'm in all of those circles. Hmm. You know, because when I was in the reggae circle, for example, like they say, oh, man, the rock music is just too loud and there's too much guitar and too much this and that. But the funny thing was when I played in this, um, one of my favorite local rock, uh, reggae bands here called Boom Shaka, Trevi Felix, who passed away a few years ago, the leader of the band, he wanted me to do all of that stuff. And when I played with Ross Michael, he's the, he's the Rasta man that's the king of the Funde drums that taught Peter Tosh and Bob Marley and all of those guys, when they do the Rasta Man chant and they have the Funde drums, boom, 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 boom. They got that from Ross Michael, who I played with for years as well. And he loved it, too. He said, man, when you play like that, you make me feel like I'm on Don Kirsten's rock concert. And I said, well, is that okay? You want me to? And he said, yes, man, keep, keep going. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some, some of those people love that stuff. But the, a lot of Rastas did not like it. They're like, too much rock, too much. It's not about glorifying the guitar. But if you watch some of those bands, they did glorify the guitar. Look at Peter Tosh. Peter Tosh had some of the most awesome guitar players that played with him. And they were influences on me, too. There was one brother, his name was Ed Alzea. If you ever watch this footage of Peter Tosh live in Brazil, and he's wearing a Jimi Hendrix T-shirt, and he is destroying the guitar. And that's the thing that when I first started playing reggae, when another roster friend of mine, Freddie Flint, who passed away, he said, man, if he can do it, you can do it. That's the first video he gave me when I first started learning reggae music. And he said, that's you. And I was like, whoa, that guy does sound like me. And it, so it let me know that I could fit it in. And once you know all the little techniques of all these different styles, you could fit right in. But you got to really study it. You know what I mean? You gotta like, have the foundation like, down in order to right. augment it. Yeah, nothing like that. Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, you know, because I've seen a lot of people play reggae that they don't play it right. 
You know, they like they're doing all these upstrokes and all that, and then it's it's not a lot of upstrokes, but they just think that that's what you got to do when you play reggae or sky. You got to go upstrokes, but it's not that. If you watch like the kings of reggae guitar, like Al Anderson and all these guys, they're they're not playing upstrokes like that. You know what I mean? But I've seen so many people say, I'm playing reggae, and they're doing these upstrokes, and I'm like, that's not it. <laughs> you know, but much love and respect, you know, in every way, in any way a person can pull it off, I guess that's not what you got to do, you know. Hey, uh, Spacey, I want to uh, mention a little bit more about that first Sound Barrier record for, yes. you know, funk fans and soul fans that watch or listen yes. to this. They may not be aware of it, so I want to... Um, you know, it came out '83, and yes. um, you know some of my favorite tracks on that were, uh, you know, "Rock Without the Roll." Wow, you liked? I didn't realize that you was a fan of that stuff. Cool. Uh, Second thoughts. Oh yes, Love I really that the instrumental breakdown on that is fierce. Wow. And um, don't put me on hold. Uh, you know that brings like custard pie to mind for me. That was a kind of like a tribute to Van Halen a little bit too. Yeah, and some Zep too. Some background vocals and stuff. Yeah. Wow, man, I appreciate that. I didn't realize that you were that much into the record, man. I love that first record too. I, there's some really good stuff on there that I was really proud of when we did it. You know. Yeah, and, and uh, you you covered a, a a Nefty song on there. Yes, and now that's a whole other story too. Yeah, he's that been on the show. Get into that. Him and I got bad blood from some situations after that, you know. Oh. That is just just really crazy stuff, you know. Mm. And I, I'm I'm a pretty positive person, so I like to just keep it positive. We we I'll I'll just leave it at this. Him and I was supposed to we did a project together was supposedly for Kanye West a few years back, and it just never happened. Mm. It never. And we spent all this time on this project that just nothing ever came of it, you know. And we just, I just left it at that. All right. Well, so after this record came out, you know, um, who'd you guys tour with and what happened with the group? Well, that's, that's another great question because uh, we had uh, Miller Beer was sponsoring us at the time. And we had a couple of other sponsors and, and Triumph, the Canadian um, rock that. band. Trio, right? They were three tour with, Yeah, they wanted us to tour with them, and the record company wouldn't wouldn't support it. So the sad part about Sound Barrier is we never really played outside of L.A. We've only did one gig out of town, and that was in San Francisco. And I forget where it was in San Francisco, but the thing that I remember about it the most was that I, that's where I met Donnie Harvey, the bass player from Automatic Man, mm. one of my favorite bands of all time. And Donnie Harvey, like, he, he welcomed us with open arms, and we became friends up until when he passed away, and that made me so sad when he passed away, you know? Because that's another influence that I didn't mention from early back in the day, too. I was listening to Automatic Man in, like, 1975. Pat Thrall is one of my greatest guitar influences Right up there with Eddie Hazel, you know. Well, it's funny, That's you know. Funny. I know uh, Jimmy Hazel is a friend of yours, yeah. And he's got so many of the uh, similar influences too. Oh, him and I are brothers, really. <laughs> we 
career. Like I used to say, he's my right arm. <laughs> and if you know Greg Fulton from Chicago, he's my left arm. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. I love those guys dearly. We actually, Jimmy and I, and Doug Pennick from King's X, Greg from Chicago from uh, Cyclone Temple, Rick Skater. We were supposed to have a band together, but we just we couldn't pull it off. It was too hard because everybody lived in separate places, and we couldn't get in that. You know how back in the day, the best way to do a record like that was to everybody get in the same room and, and bang it out, you know? We weren't able to do that. So it just kind of fell apart. Um, Maybe sure we could do it again, though. Try to do it again, you know? Okay. So you guys uh, did one more record in the 80s, right? Sound Barrier? Yeah. Actually, yeah, we did two more, actually. Born to Rock was the, the EP that we put out next. In 86, you had a full album, though, yeah. Yes, you're talking about the Speed of Light record. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the the weird record for us. <laughs> weird how? The beginning of the end of Sound Barrier right there. Oh. And it's weird because I think we picked up a lot, a lot of fans from that record. But personally, the band, we can't stand that record because, number one, I'll try to explain it as quickly as I can. Number one, our bass player was fired. That's when Stanley got fired from the band. We got a bass player from Romania. Uh, his name was Emil Lech, who was in a band called Terra that we used to be friends. We were friends with. They used to do a lot of gigs together back then. And Stanley made a comment once. He said, if I ever quit the band, you should get Emil to play bass. So when, um, when he left the band, they got, you know, Emil to play bass. And like I said, it was the beginning of the end because he was a kind of like a Jocko Pistorius uh, Steve Harris clone. Those are his two idols that he loved. And, and it's like, we started sounding like that to me. It's like Iron Maiden on that, that last record. And, and I love Iron Maiden, but I didn't want us to start sounding like other bands. You know what I mean? And, and at the same time, they were planning to throw me out of my own band at that time, too. And I had friends. I was endorsed to Jackson Guitars. This is funny. And um, the guys from Jackson called me and told me. They said, man, these guys are getting ready to fire you, and they want Alex Mossy to take your endorsement. Because Alex Mossy's the guitarist that replaced me in Sound Barrier. And once Alex got in the band, they couldn't keep calling it Sound Barrier. Because Alex Mossy was, was his own strength and his own guitar, so they ended up changing the band's name to Mossy after him. Okay. And then they made one album, and then Alex fired them. Bernie called me one day and said Alex fired him and Dave because he thought them being black would stop him from doing what he needed to do. And I was like, wow, you know, that's crazy, you know. I, I definitely prefer the first record, um, but I do I do like uh, On the Level. Well, you should have heard On the Level the way we used to play it live when Stanley was it. See, because and that's a whole other issue. A lot of those songs on that album, Stanley wrote with me, but didn't get the credit. And I had a big fallout with our manager, which was uh, our our singer Bernie's brother, Charles Kimball, was our manager at the time. And him and I had a big fallout over it because I was like, how come you didn't get Stanley credit for these songs he wrote with me? You know what I mean? And, it, and, and like I said, that was the beginning of the end of Sound Barrier right there. So right after that, we, 
I, I, they fired me, and after, you know, Monty, and then that whole thing just fell apart, you know? Mm. you know? So then 30 years later, here comes Tom Morello talking about how he's such a big fan of Soundbearer, and he got us back together. Yeah, you I know? saw the clip oh, of that guy. on YouTube of him uh, introducing you guys uh, a few years ago, and yeah. um, that was a really cool tribute, and it was great to see you guys back doing it again. Yeah. I love Tom, too. He's a great guy, man. I had no idea. Because when I was in Mother's Finest in 92, the drummer Dion, Joyce and Glenn's son, used to listen to Rage Against the Machine all the time on the bus and stuff. And he'd go, man, you got to listen to this Tom Morello guy. He's the next Jimi Hendrix. And I was like, mm, I don't know about that, but I like what he's doing, you know. Different. And then fast, Innovative. You know, fast forward a few years later, my, me and my girlfriend Lisa Marie and our band Praise the Dead, we um we had some friends that she knew that we met that um in Fairfax and we lived in this house together on Fairfax um in you know in California and she was working for this company called Axis of Justice. Axis of Justice was the company owned by Tom Morello and and Serge Tankian from System of a Down. So she would come home and say, Man, Tom Morello was talking about you all day. And I'm like, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine was talking about me? And she goes, yeah, he loves you. And I'm like, really? I didn't even know he knew who I was. You know what I mean? <laughs> so Lisa and I started doing Praise the Dead shows around town. And we did this one show, and we opened for Tom. And Tom gave us such a stunning inter um, introduction, I couldn't even come on stage. He was like, man, this guy... I idolized this guy, and he, you know, he was in this band Sound Barrier, and blah, blah. I was like, wow, I didn't even know he knew that, mm. you know. So then, from then on, Tom and I and Lisa have been—we've been close friends ever since. So he kept asking about putting the band back together, and I was saying, well, you know, our drummer passed away. Dave Brown, our drummer, passed away uh, in 2013 from uh, cancer. So we ended up getting another drummer. And we did the thing at the Whiskey and started writing material for a new album. And we kind of stopped a little bit because the material, like I, when we first got back together, I was like, I don't want to have anything to do with the 80s. This is 2000, you know, 20, 90, whatever it was. And I didn't want to do any of that because I wanted to show our progression. And I was, we always wondered, what would we sound like if we didn't break up? If we just kept going, you know what I mean? So I started writing this really progressive, like, eight-string music <laughs> with my new influences, you know, being animals. Show, show people that guitar you have there with the eight strings. This is called the Spacecraft. And what are, what are the extra two strings? What, what, no, what uh, notes are they? Uh, they're lower strings. So for me, as I was telling you, I tune in open D tuning. So it's D, A, D, A, D, F sharp, A, D, low to high. And, it's, and this, there's a whole story behind this guitar as well. Like, it's a, it's a crazy story, you know. But um, I'll get to it in a minute, though. Back to the sound barrier stuff. Like, once we, you know, got back together with Tom and started writing this music, I was like, mm, this doesn't sound like sound barrier. You know, so we went back to the drawing board and started writing more stuff. I started embracing the 80s more. So this newer stuff that we're going to come out with now is a little bit, has a little bit of the 80s influence in it, 
you know. And actually, this next single we're going to release is one of the songs we used to open our set with. We used to open with instrumentals. So the reason why it was instrumentals, because back then, Bernie couldn't think of a, enough you know, lyrics to write to this stuff. Because Stanley and I was coming up with so much music. We have like about five albums worth of music that we never even recorded yet. You know what I mean? So we decided to take at least two or three songs off of, from that time period and update them and add them to the newer stuff that we're doing now. So this song is one of the instrumentals we used to do back then, and Bernie finally put lyrics to it, and it's called Blindfolded Soldier. And uh, I don't know what people are going to say about it, but we just got to call it as we see it. The song is about the insurrection of the Capitol. Mm. <laughs> Pretty timely. You know, that's all to say about it. And, and the <laughs> thing is, like, we're not saying this or that. We're just calling what we see. You know, this is what happened, you know. So that's going to be our next single. We, we were going to put out a song before this, uh, and we still may put it out. But it just, it's really progressive and aggressive. <laughs> and if you look at that thing that we did with uh, the, 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 uh, the re reunion show, we played it there. A song was called The Strangest Thing. And... We went back in the studio and really did it up really nice. And um, it's going to still come out, but we went, we went back to the drawing board and just decided it didn't really sound like us. It sounded like me. Because see, what happened was that song was going to be on one of my solo albums. I was working on a solo album when the time, at the time that Tom got in touch with us. So the only material I had to contribute to the five songs that Tom wanted to hear was my solo material, and that was one of the songs. And so are, you, are you guys recording remo remotely, or, you, or did you get together in person? Or yeah, what? we were doing it all remotely. Bernie and I did it all remotely, but we didn't even see each other. I did music, sent it to him. He put vocals on it, and then we did a rough mix on it and sent it to Tom. So the song that, that he picked first was a song called I'm Just a Man, and that was one of Bernie's old demos that he had that we never played before, but Tom liked it. So that's the first song we did, and that's the one that we released. So you think an album before 2021 is over? We, well, we, we decided to cut it down instead of an album like a six-song EP because then we can get it done a lot faster. And we don't want our fans to have to wait too much longer for new music, you know? Wow. Well, that's something to look forward to. for a while now as it is, you know? We, yeah. we don't want to wait too much longer, you know? You mentioned uh, Praise the Dead, so as long as, you know, you mentioned it. Um, I was really not familiar, but, you know, leading up to this, I checked it out. So um, with Lisa, you said, right? And so I was yes. thinking, wow, this is sort of like a metal white stripes. Kind of, kind of, yeah. The difference is Lisa can sing her ass off. So she's right. the, the vocalist and the drummer. Yeah. So her on vocals and drums and me on eight-string guitar. That's the band. It's power. We call it a power duo. You know, so we have a new single coming out soon too, called "Dead to Me," and that's really intense. Bill Matoyer, uh, Bill Matoyer, and Doug uh, Doug Penick from King Zet helped us with that song, engineered and, and helped us produce it and stuff. How did you decide that you would, you know, make music just the two of you? Well, once we got together. Um, I, I thought she was such a great drummer because uh, we met now. We've been together about um, over 15 years. And um, what happened was we were touring. I was touring with Fishbone. And we did, a, we, were, we did a tour together with King's X. 
So it was Fishbone King's X, and we would co-headline. We would take turns headlining different venues. And when we played in Colorado, uh, Lisa was there, and um, got to meet her, and she sat in with us, and when we jammed after the concert and stuff. And I was like, wow, you're a great drummer. We should get together and do some music together. I'd love to produce you or something and work with you, you know. So she came out to L.A., and we started writing music together and stuff. And then we um, we did that first batch of uh, Praise the Dead music, which was like in 2012. And the ironic thing about that was Tom Morello, as strange as it was, was going to sign Praise the Dead. <laughs> He heard that stuff and he loved it, you know. And but but what happened was sound barrier. He he wanted to put the sound barrier thing back together, and that kind of took precedence over the praise the dead thing, you know. You don't so, uh, you don't find you miss uh, the bass at all? Say it again. Oh, in praise the dead. Yeah. Um, well, actually, I'm playing bass on it too. See, what we're doing is um like a lot of bands nowadays, and it's funny because Lisa and I used to think back in the day, I used to think it was cheating <laughs> if you play the tracks, you know. I'm like, well, why are they doing that? What are you doing? But we never did it. And we used to laugh about it. So we said, you know what? It'd be interesting to play to some of our tracks, you know, because we've both never done it before. So what we do is I have a loop station, and I have all my bass parts in the loop station with a click track and, and some rhythm guitars and some, some background vocals here and there. Mm -hmm. And step on that, she's got the click track in her ear, and we play live guitar and, and drums and vocals over it. Okay. And it sounds awesome, too. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. I love that, too. Wow. And now, like, everybody does that. I mean, my favorite band of today does that. Every, Animals is Leaders. They, they're playing to their tracks. You know, a lot of bands do it. You know, and I know some people don't like it at all. Some people are like, that's not real. You're not playing, you know. But for me, it's like when, when I see those people playing, they're really playing. You know, it's not like a tape of the, of the, they're playing live over their bass tracks, you know, or their keyboard tracks or something. And the drummer's really playing to it, and the guitars are really playing to it, and people are really singing over it. So I can see it's not lip syncing, you know what I mean? Right. Lip thinking is a whole nother thing, you know what I mean? And I could never do that. I, I mean, our, Lisa's too good of a vocalist to, to lip sync, you know. She's a, she despises it. <laughs> you know? So I don't know if you ever heard any of that stuff, but it's it's really heavy and it's really intense. Yeah, yeah. well, I saw some on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it was very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, I'd like to hear some more. Yes, it's well. Some that single's coming. Dead to me will be out soon. You know. Cool. We're so going to work on another EP as well. So you're kind of juggling like three things right now, right? Because the funk experience. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. At least three. <laughs> yes. And that was very cool too, because uh, what happened with that was a few like last year we all met in Asheville, and um, the goal was to put together an EPK so we could start touring so we went there rehearsed for about because we stayed there for about a month rehearsed for a few weeks a couple weeks and then did two live shows recorded them all and you know filmed everything and we got a residency in Las Vegas and the whole thing got canceled <laughs> because of COVID you know? wow it sounds great. I mean, people can probably still catch some of those clips. I think I know at least yeah. 
they were on YouTube at one time. Um, maybe they still. Yeah, it sounds great. I mean, the, those tracks. Oof. I mean, Maggot Brain is just phenomenal. I mean, it's just because, like, I mean, I've heard a lot of people play Maggot Brain, and I'm, I tried to get every part perfect. You know what I mean? Because that song is just one of the soundtracks of my life. And, and if you hear that stuff, that's what my goal is. That's what I'm like. I was telling you earlier is to get the feel of somebody and make people really feel you know, what that song was. And that's like, I don't know if you know uh, Gabe Gonzalez. Oh, yeah. He's been on the and show. Curry, you know Lodge too? Yeah, he's been on. When I met them, when I met Lodge, he said, man, you, you are something else. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, me and Gabe almost went to blows over you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, Gabe played me some tracks of you, and I thought it was Eddie. And I'm telling him it's Eddie, and he's like, man, that is not Eddie. I'm telling you, it's not. And they were going to fight over it. <laughs> I was like, man, what are you trying to trick me? That's Eddie. No, it's not, man. I'm telling you, it's not Eddie. It's Spacey T. Wow. You know? So it's it's funny, you know, how it, how it gets so close. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.